It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Oh my god, I think this worked. Oh, who do I have with me? I have Sumer. Yes. <laughs> I got you finally. Finally I'm Sumer. here. Good to have you here. I'm waiting now for poor Johnny. And there's Johnny. We're all here. This is great. Technology failed. It took it took uh, two computer guys and a, and a dork to figure this one out, but we got it done. Let's I go. was the dork. And, and guess who the dork? <laughs> I was the dork. <laughs> so how are you? Good to, good to have everybody on here. Everybody, welcome welcome to the tent. Uh, this is our uh, one of our special editions, and as usual, we always have the, the exciting part is the technical problems. Once we get that done, it's just a bunch of fish geeks talking. So happy to have here today my favorite co-host, Johnny Ciotti, and the special guest, Sumer Tawari, who is like one of my fish-keeping heroes, just so you know. Um, if you, if, Sumer, you've been keeping fish, what, since... How, how long? How long have you been keeping fish? Uh, been keeping fish from. I'm sorry. Lost you there for a second, Sumer. Oh no! Oh, oh there yeah, I hear go. you now. There okay. you go. So I can't let my computer screen lock. No, <laughs> that's the yeah, key. If you yeah. lock your computer you screen, the phone and or breathe too deeply. Yeah. yeah. No, all, don't breathe. Don't move your head. Window. Okay. <laughs> don't 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 change the temperature too rapidly, yeah. or or your computer will reproduce. And you, and you thought breeding hypoancestress was tough, right? I know. This is easy. <laughs> this is easy. So, Sumer, you've been keeping fish how, for how long? Yeah, Since... I've been keeping fish from uh, 2006. So it's been nice. about 15 years now. Wow. Wow. And you've done more in 15 years than some of us have done in a lifetime, especially with fish breeding. Um, yeah, you guys, everyone here in the U.S., I think, is just extremely lucky to have, um, you know, aquarium stores close by and everything. Um, the place where I grew up, um, we didn't have anything. I I don't think I had even I had even seen an aquarium store up until 2006. So wow. just didn't have the luxury to to keep fish. Wow. You've made up for lost time. That's for sure. For sure. I've been I've been I've been cramming everything. So, Sumer, Johnny and I have been itching to have you on for the longest time because you, if people don't follow you on Instagram, you're Streamlined Sparkles, that's your Instagram handle, and you mm-hmm. have been sharing amazing videos of your fish breeding products, uh, projects and uh, just some of the fish you keep. Um, why don't you bring everybody up to speed? And, Johnny, feel free to jump in if you, if you want to ask a question here on this. But what, what are some of the current things you're working on fish breeding-wise right now, and what's your most exciting project? Sure. Um, So I'll just tell you about the fish I have right now and the ones that I'm working on, uh, you know, to to have them breed in the tanks. Um, So the very first thing that I have are my wild discus. Um, They're from, uh, they call it the Lago. It's a lake. They call it Lago Cuipua. And uh, it's it's connected to the Amazon River. Uh, it's right there in the state of Para. Uh, and uh, our friend Mike Tukinardi was gracious mm-hmm. enough to to help me import those. 
uh, last year. Um, so right when you guys were interviewing him, uh, about a week or so ago, before that uh, podcast was recorded, he actually helped me get the fish. Um, ah, yeah. okay. Because the color on those fish is stunning. I mean, it's amazing. I was surprised. You know, you think wild discus and you don't think, oh, the color is so dramatic. It is um, unbelievable. Yeah, they're pretty. They're pretty. Um, but that's the biggest breeding project I have right now. Um, and uh, I've just been so nervous to start that project. Right now, they're in a big 220-gallon tank. Um, and I mm-hmm. have another 90-gallon sitting right next to it where uh, I'm supposed to select two or three pairs and transfer them to the 90-gallon and hopefully... I'll see some magic, but yeah, I just haven't gathered enough courage to select the pairs. I don't know which one is male, which one is female. <laughs> um, so I've just been procrastinating. But is, one of these days I will. Is is there a way to tell with discus? As far as I mean, forgive my ignorance, but as far as like when they start pairing off, is it is there are there some signs that they sort of get aggressive, or do they just is it hard to say because they're kind of mellow fish to begin with? So the best way. Uh, for them to do it is for them to pair off on their own. Um, and if they pair off on their own, they will, you know, two fish will get secluded in a corner and they'll try to chase everyone else away. And that's how you know that's a pair. But ah. un- unless that happens, um, you don't know. And you, so that's what, what, so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to kind of force them to make a pair. Play matchmaker. <laughs> yeah. So take a couple of fish out put them together and see if they go together well. Uh, if both are male or both are female, you're not going to see anything. But if they kind of kick it off, then they'll probably stay together. They'll try to clean a surface, so forth and so on. So those would be the signs. So it's very, very subtle. One one doesn't just go buy like a new Ford Mustang or Corvette and start going around. <laughs> I wish they did that. <laughs> That'd be a hell of a lot easier. I know. (laughs) And they don't even show too many physical signs, characteristics that will show you, that will tell you that, oh, this fish is showing these characteristics. We know 100% this is a male or this is a female. It doesn't work that way. Wow. That's, that's, you don't know what you got until you got it. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Wow. You don't know if it's what? a female until you have seen that fish laying <laughs> until eggs. Until you see it laying eggs. <laughs> yes. Well, are, are, are they changing sex at all? I mean, are they deciding, you know, that their sex at, at, at that point? that point in time is there i mean yeah, yeah my, my ignorance as well you know right no the, 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 they can't do what for example clownfish can do so they are yeah. male or female it's just that you don't know what do you do to keep okay now you've got these fish in the 220 what are you what kind of conditions are you giving them right now are you giving them like special conditions for breeding or you just always keep them in specific water conditions and what are those parameters i'm kind of curious yeah so right now they're uh, in my tap water and we are extremely lucky here in colorado front range to have just amazing water yeah the tds out of tap is about 65 parts per million um, and uh, that's nothing wow i know uh, and ph is about 7.3 7.4 uh, and the water is just fresh snow water, right? So it's very clean. Yeah. So I just put them in the tap water, um, and the temperature fluctuates between 80 to 84. Uh, every mm-hmm. now and again, I would bump it down to like 79, 80. And then for a couple of months, I'll put it up to 84. Um, 
it, how do they do it? How do they do it? Seventy nine or eighty versus eighty four? Is eighty four more optimum for breeding, or is it? So all the some... breeders usually keep them at eighty four um, because I think that increases the metabolism. Uh, mm -hmm. So they eat more. Uh, they are sucking up the nutrients more, so they get ready to lay the eggs faster. I think. Um, but as Mike told in his podcast, you know that's not how they live in wild. Uh, the temperature is fluctu fluctuating. Right. Um, half the year they're in colder water, half the year they're in hotter water. So, and that's interesting because Johnny and I have discussions about this a lot. Johnny's a big fan of like room temperature, right, Johnny? I mean, you're like you're not a heater guy per se. Yeah, I you know, but also at the same time, I'm not I'm not trying to breed. You know, the, the right the difference, I guess, is like you know, if you want Johnny to breed, you're going to need certain <clears throat> specific requirements and, and like <laughs> certain music's going to, you're going to have to put really good bottle of wine. Actually yeah. just at loop and then drink wine only or just <laughs> exclusively, you know, it's a different thing, but for the most part, um, yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it's a room, room temperature sort of, uh, you know, ordeal. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, they go in and if it's comfortable, it's comfortable. And if not, I just don't keep species that are, that are really, really sensitive. Um, to room temperature and by room temperature it's like something comfortable here in, in southern california which is you know ridiculously perfect year-round yeah we so. have great temperatures here and and to be honest uh, i've <clears> been <throat> told that i baby my fish too much <laughs> so <laughs> who told you that jake probably told jake you that, right? exactly yeah of he course jake told you. He goes, well oh, that's where i learned too much as well <laughs> you know that yeah. probably 10, 10 years or more ago and, and, and Jake uh, Jake was just like you know you're kind of doing too much here and he's yep. like I suggest you just stop and I was like you, you suggest I stop doing aquariums or stop babying the fish <laughs> and he's just like stop babying the fish and it's like okay okay um, but yeah it's um, I don't know it, 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 part of the game though is is uh, is chasing chasing those elusive things and, and the numbers and uh, trying to make the environment and, you know, we're, we're going for optimization here with breeding, not necessarily always the most natural, but, um, you know, what, what's the prime, that, that, that prime number, what's the thing that they're going to really do the best in, uh, and then perpetuate that. And, and that's where it gets interesting too, uh, Sumer, regards, in regards to, I mean, you're a breeder, but in terms of keeping the fish, because obviously, you know, we talk a lot about like trying to replicate the environment on as many ways as many ways as we can but that being said these fish are doing fine in your you know front range tap water and you obviously have no issues breeding all kinds of fishes so i kind of wonder sometimes i know fish are adaptable and so forth but where do you what do you feel between like uh giving fish their absolute natural habitat environment conditions or giving them what works for you or what's easy replicable for you do you have a feeling one way or another That's just computer closed. Uh oh, did you close your computer, Summer? Screen lock. I'm sorry. Oh, you breathe. You took a breath or something. Did <laughs> you hear my question? Breath. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> okay. What's your, um, what's your thinking? Here? Yeah. What I think is, um, I have a very simple answer to that. Uh, I do whatever it takes for the fish to breathe. <laughs> yeah. I, I try. I try everything until they spot. Um, so that's yeah. usually I start with my tap water. If that doesn't work play with the temperature if that doesn't work change them to a mix of tap and ro uh, if that doesn't work then i experiment with all the food that i feed them if that doesn't work mm -hmm. then my last last one is usually ph 
because I don't really like playing around with sulfuric acid until I have to. Right. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you were the first person to introduce me. And I don't know, I can't say realistically, you were the first person in the United States to do this, but you were the first person that introduced me back in 2006 to jackfruit leaves. Yeah. Your dad would send you some from India. Yeah. And you said, you really got to try these, Scott. You really like them. And they are fantastic for definitely for imparting some color to the water. And I'm sure they obviously put some humic substances and so forth. I don't know <laughs> pH wise, but if they manipulate the pH, I don't know if you've tested that in RO water or anything, but do you use them a lot still? Oh yeah. I Jackfruit leaves are my favorite leaves to use. Go to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I really like almond leaves too, or katapa leaves, but mm-hmm. katapa leaves just uh, degrade so much faster. Whereas yes. jackfruit leaves are so much thicker that they, they just stay there. <laughs> Um, for the longest time. Now, 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 here's a question I have for you regarding leaves, and Johnny will probably want to jump on this too. With regards to your fishes, especially the fry, mm-hmm. when especially like your catfish, you breed a lot of catfish. We'll talk about that in a little bit. When they're young, I notice sometimes in your photos you have leaves in the tank. Is that thinking in terms of for feeding the fish, or supplemental feeding with biofilms, or is it for water conditioning, so to speak? Or what, what purpose do you have those in there for? Yeah, so... Sometimes it's usually to provide them with some hiding space under the leaf. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so for example, the Pseudohemidon epithanos, those uh, weird uh, lizard-looking yeah, catfish. Yeah, those are cool. <laughs> yeah. So those fry don't really feed on uh, biofilm. Well, I'm not going to say biofilm, but the leaf itself. They, they're mm-hmm. not going to, they just don't have the, the suction power in their mouth to, to destroy rasp. a leaf. Yeah. Right, um, right. So I throw them in there. Uh, just so that they can hide under it. They love hiding under shade. So, mm-hmm. But when I put them in with my, let's say, Hypensister Zebra or uh, the L34, yes. um, they love to eat the leaf, actually. So, really? Yeah. And especially the L134s, uh, they, they go through a couple of leaves every three, four days. Wow. Now, as you know, that's my favorite of all the... Uh the L series catfishes and, and you have recently bred. How many do you have right now? I can't count. Oh, you have that many. That's yeah. sick. Yeah. Wow. They just what kept going. There was a period of about 25 days uh, when I got about five or six spawns. Wow. Yeah. From just one big clutches. No, I have about uh-huh. 10 fish um, uh-huh. that Mike uh, got me. Uh, uh-huh. They're wild collected. Um, uh-huh. And I, th- I think there are two males and eight females. And those two males did a fantastic job. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did they, so they don't form like pairs in the way that like cichlids do, where there's a, like a permanent bonding thing, right? There was any male will breed with any female kind yeah. of thing. You don't have to pair them off. Right. It, it's really interesting. Uh, the male claims a cave and mm-hmm. he kind of sits in there. And then the females come knocking on his door saying, hey, you interested? And... He would let one of the females come in and then he will block the female in the cave and wouldn't let that female go until she lays the eggs. And then once the <laughs> eggs are there, then he kicks the female out and then he takes care of the eggs. It's awesome wow. to watch them That's do the cool. whole thing. Yeah, yeah cool. they have a show about that, actually. I think it's called Jerry Springer. Uh, <laughs> it's really about the same exact thing. Johnny's on a roll today. <laughs> the, the male never takes care of the eggs. It always just kicks everybody out, and then it vacates the premises. And that's just sort of it. 
It's um, it's great, great, great fish breeding show. Yeah, yeah. No, and actually, this. sometimes here's also what happens. So while the male is taking care of the the clutch, right? Sometimes other females will come knocking, saying that you know what? Don't worry about that clutch. Let let's nice. have another clutch. And sometimes he would kick the clutch out. Oh really? And yeah, go to town with another female. And I'm like, dude, you're supposed to take care of this. <laughs> What what kind of care do they give? Do they like fan the eggs to keep. Oh yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. They would sit in there. They would keep fanning the eggs until mm-hmm. they hatch. Um, if you would let them, they would sit in the cave until the the fry are big enough to just run on their own out of the cave. Oh wow, like cichlids yeah. then? So yeah, they'll actually provide parental care. Yeah. Wow, that's kind of cool. What um now in terms of um size tanks now this is a question i've always had for people like you that, that breed fish actively what kind of tanks do you use like talk about your setup a little bit size wise i know you have a bunch of tanks but what sizes do you use typically for breeding these guys Farting breeder i think is my favorite tank size um, mm-hmm. because it it just has the p- perfect amount of water for most all fish to to breed uh, you have a pair of discus you can breed in party breeder uh, you've got flecos you can breed in there uh, mm-hmm. I'm breeding my Pseudohemia donopithonos in there. Um, now you, you can't really breed, for example, Altam angels in there. You know they, they need wow. that height. But forty breeder is my favorite. Um, after that, the twenty highs are my mm-hmm. second favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, they work with twenty all... high. Really, you like the high? What what, yeah. what is it about the high? Is it just because you work with a lot of fish that need vertical height, or do you just like that dimension? Well, the first thing is that you can. You can have more of them together in a rack. It, it's more, mm-hmm. uh, more practical. For yeah, that. yeah. So if I had twenty longs, I I would need a really long or really deep oh, uh, stand. Yeah, and I I stack them so that they're how should I say they're not uh, horizontal. They're kind of vertical, mm-hmm. vertically sitting oh, so in the they're... rack. So you're looking at the long side. Of yeah, that. yeah. You oh, got it. so you yep. can put more. That's a killifish trick too. I know that yeah. killie breeders do that. Yeah. So, so how many do you have on a given? Like, like how big are your ra- your uh, tank racks typically? Uh, I have about ten, twenty highs, uh, and mm-hmm. then I have about five, ten gallons, and then I have about five, five gallons, and about five, two gallons. <laughs> oh wow! So you've got a nice little setup there. Yeah. And then I have some uh, 90 gallons for 40 breeders. Mm-hmm. And then this 220 gallon and, and a few others assorted tanks. Now, are you keeping, <clears throat> with, for example, with, the, with the, the catfish, are you keeping them together all the time? Or are you separating them in individual tanks and putting them together to spawn? Or are you letting them spawn in the tank that they're actually residing in? Um, how do you, what's your process? So all my tanks are species-only tanks. I don't make mm-hmm. species. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, all my hypensistra zebras, uh, I've mm-hmm. got nine or ten of them. They're in that one ninety uh, p, and that's where they stay. I don't move them out. I don't. I don't disturb them at all. They just stay in there. That's their home. They spawn mm-hmm. in there, and I take the fry out. But that's where they stay. Interesting. And <clears throat> what are you? Um, are you, I guess the word is, I don't want to say escaping those things. What do you keep bare bottom and just kind of with hiding places? What, what do you tend to do? Is it more utilitarian or do you kind of keep them in with sand or gravel or what, what do you typically do? That, that That's a really good question you asked that, you know, a lot of the times the, the, 
the aquascaping community would look look at some of these tanks that are bare bottom and very very functional and they would kind of question it that yeah are you really doing enough for the fish do they live like ah. this in the wild no they're just spawning because they're miserable <laughs> <right>? <laughs> but at the same time the other uh, the other side of the house would argue that well it's functional and it's easier to clean yeah. and so i have both the the, the kind of tanks um, yeah so whatever works for that species whatever is easier for them so i i, I do that basically all my epistogrammas uh, they have a really detailed scape tank with all the botanicals that I've gotten mm-hmm. from you. Um, mm-hmm. But for example, when it comes to all my beta macrostoma, their tanks are just nothing. I mean, it's tank with water yeah. and a fish. That's it. <laughs> Talk to me about those fish for a second. I'm sure Johnny has questions on that because yeah, he likes betas I, too. I'll, I'll probably listen more than anything else because, you know, I, I wish I wish I knew enough. <laughs> yeah, the wild betas are amazing. Like, what? Tell me about your beta macrostigma tanks. What do you? How do you keep those fish? What do? You, what do you do? You get a group of. You get a pair. And you start with because that's a fish that I think anybody that wants to get into fish breeding should play with because it's such an interesting fish. But talk yeah. to me about that. Yeah, they're, they're probably my favorite. Well, second most favorite beta species. The first one is beta hendra. Um, ah, uh, I have Ooh, Johnny. I have you have one. Now. Of those. Yeah, I have one now. I, I I need a female for it. Oh, I, I have a ton of fry growing up. I'll send you some. There you go. Yeah. I'm literally Done. in hundreds. <laughs> right now. Cool. So so talk to me about your beta setup. Like what how do you how do you work with them? Bet you his monitor closed. Yeah, bet your monitor your monitor locked up again. Darn it. I'm sorry. I'm back. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. You heard my question on that? Yes, I did. I okay. Did. So do you do you, do you get them to pair off? Do you keep a group of fish? What, what do you start with? Yeah. Like, you get a bunch of betas. So um, y- you usually buy or get beta microstomas in pair. Mm-hmm. So you get one male and one female. Um, unlike, you know, killifish or... Uh, guppies you don't get a trio or a reverse trio you you usually just get a pair and uh, once you have the pair depending on how big they are um, usually you don't buy an adult pair if you are in the u.s trying to buy better macrostoma you'd probably Mm -hmm. get something that's semi-adult or even juvenile so the first thing you'll do is try to grow them up and to grow them up it's perfectly fine to put them in a 10 gallon tank or a 20 high or a 20 long um and that's where a lot of the confusion happens uh, because people people try to overdo it, I think. They're like, oh, we need some plants in there. I need some hiding right. spaces. I need some driftwood to make it feel more natural. Or I need some sand. Or you know what? I'm going to put some ADS oil in there to reduce the <laughs> pH. Right, and right. Th- I, that's just overkill, in my opinion. And this it's is just, I'm, I'm just saying from my personal experience. Yeah. My beta macrostoma are in a tank with water and a sponge filter. That That is it. Interesting. Huh. And that is, is, the, is there aggression? Is the male unusually aggressive towards the female most of the time? Or is it is there courtship? Or is it just they just live together and then when it's time to spawn, boom, they, they're laying eggs? <laughs> That's a very subjective question because every pair might be a little different. Um, mm-hmm. But based on what I have seen, all the pairs I have, I have about four or five pairs right now of adult fish. Um, and I have 240 breeders full of juveniles right now. Um, I don't see aggression in pairs. 
the female can sometimes be aggressive when she wants to spawn and the male is not interested interesting that's the time when you see most of the aggression from female and really i've heard a lot from a lot of friends that their female killed the male wow uh, unlike no I, yeah that's that's uh that's that's pretty common again i could go right back to jerry springer with that one <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah in some of the other species i think it's usually the male killing the female uh, like yeah. even in apistogrammas or even in pike cichlids you know uh, right but do, do you see a big difference between say like the 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 aggression um between sort of the bubble nesters and some of the mouth brooders like i mean this this bait is very different than some of the others um and maybe some of our listeners will want to hear uh, about that and why this fish is a little bit different, more rewarding, um, uh, especially to, to breed. You know, that is a really good question. Um, and I think that, so one analogy that I can give is think of these big pythons versus uh, a water snake or a cobra. So the bubble mm. nesters are like cobra. They're really swift. They, they're always moving. Um you know, you do something and they're scared or they're running away or they're trying to attack each other. Whereas the these mouth brooders, almost every species in unimaculata complex, so beta unimaculata or beta macrostoma, they're all like pythons. They're big, bulky, and they're going to stay in one place unless they have to move around or you're making them move around. They like to mm. take it very easy. Huh. Um so they, they they don't really go at each other poking that hey why are you here and I'm gonna bite you uh, I don't see sure. it that way yeah so they're just uh, you know uh, less boisterous for the most part and um, a little more mild tempered as well in my opinion yes based on what I see in my tanks they're much much better than for example better Hendra. Because I was I, just gonna, I was gonna use that comparison. Yeah, yeah. You you watch Beta Hendra pair spawning, and the male is beating the crap out of the female, and she's missing a bunch of fins. And now I'm having to you know quarantine her for the next two weeks, and that happens after almost every spawn, and they spawn every month or so. So every month, the female is getting beat up. Whereas in macrostomas, nothing happens. They're both happy before, after, and during the spawn. Now, how do you know that you actually have a spawn? Well, like, what, what, what is the? You'll see the if you don't see the courtship. Do you know the males? Is the male is the male that broods or the, yeah. or the female? Yeah, yeah. It, it's a parental mouth brooder, so the male holds the eggs, um, and it's very easy to it's tell. It's very easy to tell because you will. You will. I can't hear myself, myself now. now. Oh, did I do something wrong? It's probably nothing you did, but <laughs> you might be. Don't okay. Know. What? Oh, oh me? Better. I'm yeah. back. Yeah. Maybe sorry. Yeah. I have a, a bit of a cough. It's it's definitely not COVID. I've already had that. So, um, <laughs> and uh, I, I I coughed hard enough that my my earbud popped out, which is it's funny because normally I do my podcast with you, uh, you know, pretty robust audio equipment. Right. Right, right now, right. I'm just using the little little headphone things. Nice. And, um, you know, I, I don't really have any control over what happens with these. So I can't, We're all like, on the same, I can't the same mute and, and then jump out or any of those kind of things. And, um, I just launched one of them from, from my head and it disconnected from Bluetooth. 
<laughs> it happens. That's so, works actually. So, so, so with regards to the parental care, um, what what do you see? Are they actually the fisher uh, when they when the fry are out? Are they are the is the male and the male and the female are sort of taking care of them, or how does that work? Yeah. So, here's how it works. You have a better microstome up there in a tank. And it's usually the male who starts to display at the female. And mm-hmm. they have a really beautiful display. Um, once the female is convinced, it usually takes a few days for the female to get convinced. Once the uh-huh. female gets convinced, uh, she starts to dance. And I'm talking a real, real dance. Uh, I have some videos on my, I think, Instagram page you'll watch. Uh, mm-hmm. She almost dances like a snake. Um, so she's, oh, wow. she's making waves in her body. And when that happens in the next few hours, they start to embrace. Um, and one thing that's different from uh, like the beta simplex complex, so beta hendra or beta splendens or normal uh, betas, every embrace does not yield in eggs. So beta macrostoma will probably do an embrace 10 times and the 11th time is when they will have a good embrace where the eggs come out and they get fertilized oh interesting yeah whereas how many you know, how many do you get in a in a typical spawn the female wants to lay a lot of eggs so the female uh-huh. can lay up to 70 80 eggs in one mm-hmm. in one spawn but um so that's there's a whole big debate and i recently wrote in uh, a, a really long blog post on Amazon's website about this whole thing, right? Because the problem with a lot of people that try to breed macrostoma is that the male wouldn't hold. So this whole, uh, what I just told you happens and then the male would end up eating the eggs. And a lot of people say that, well, why is that? Is my male not good or what's going on? And there are a million theories out there that, well, you disturbed the male. That's why he ate it. Or he was hungry and that's why he ate it. Right. Um, but in my opinion, they're pretty smart and he eats it because he knows the eggs were not fertilized or not enough eggs were fertilized for him to huh. waste time that. for yeah. 14 days. Yeah. No, it's actually 25. 20 to 25. That's a long time. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, so I think that's why he ends up then eating that clutch, that batch. And then let's try again. Huh. Yeah, and no, no, they have they they have pretty large fry though, right? They're not like tiny, tiny like 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 beta splendens, right? I mean, no. these are actually these are pretty good fry, size. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. These are about four, five millimeter, half a centimeter. Oh, that's almost. good size. Yeah, really good size. They are eating uh, baby like brine shrimp. Baby right. brine shrimp day one. As soon as they come out, they start eating. Oh wow! Yeah, that that's makes cool. it a lot easier. Oh yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. very easy. Do you know, after they release the fry, are you keeping the whole family together for an extended period of time? When do you actually finally take the male and female out or do you raise them as a family or what, what do you do typically? Yeah. So, so my preferred method is to take the female out as soon as the spawn is done. Mm-hmm. And then, because you know, the, what happens is if you leave the female in the tank, now, of course you have to feed the female. Because she just spent so much energy laying those eggs. She needs to eat. But now, male is not supposed to eat because he's holding. He can't eat. So, Ah. sometimes people have, and I've not uh, witnessed this myself, but people say that sometimes the male can get greedy because the female is eating. He wants to eat. So, 
I take the female out and I put her in another tank so that I can condition her again. Um, and I let the male be by himself in a tank. Um, and then I just cover it up with a towel or something. Um, it's complete isolation, basically. I, I don't want him to get disturbed or anything. Right. Uh, and that's that's where Jake would say that I baby my fish too much. That, yeah, well, let him sit there. Why do you need to cover the tank? <laughs> I don't know. It just works for me. <laughs> I feel and, better and that how, way. And that's a good a good question, too. I just wanted to ask you about that. You, you hear a lot with anabantids in general. You, you need to keep them in a tightly covered tank because you need to keep the temperature real high. And what, what's your approach on that? Uh, do you, you said you keep a sponge filter, so you do have some surface agitation. The, there's some gas exchange there. The temperature is, do you have an extra heater in there or is it just your fish room is heated? What kind of temperature do you use? Yeah, so my fish room is in the basement. Uh, so mm-hmm. the temperature lingers about 72, 72, 73 sometimes. Mm-hmm. Even in the summer, it's pretty cool here. Um, so all my tanks are heated uh, and mm-hmm. they're all on a controller uh, because mm-hmm. uh, how many times have we seen people boiling their fish a million yeah. times? So I just do not trust the heaters. Yeah. Almost every tank in my fish room is on a controller. And anyone listening, if if you have some fish that you really like, uh, make sure you use a controller. Don't don't rely on heaters thermostat to, you know, keep the temperature right and not kill your fish. Uh, but anyway, I, I keep these beta macrostomas at right about 76 to 77 Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. Uh, not too hot, not too cool, just right yeah. there in the middle. Um, and, uh, th- the only reason I keep, um, sponge filter is just for some biological filtration, uh, because if you don't have that, um, you know, they're pooping and then there's ammonia buildup, then right. either you change the water frequently, uh, which is not possible, you know, when he's holding the eggs, I don't want to disturb him for two, three weeks. So right. that's the only reason I have a sponge filter. Are you a big water change guy? Like in general, do you change water a lot or do you have a a process of maintenance that you do in your system, in your fish room? Does it vary by tank or? It, it varies by species actually. So. Oh, really? Yeah. So better macrostoma. The, the biggest problem with this fish is ick. The, the golden dust or ick mm-hmm. or velvet, whatever you want to call that. It's, um, it's, it's just the number one killer of these fish uh, in the whole United States. And, Otherwise, what, what do you what do you attribute that to? Temperature, or they get damaged? Their skin gets damaged, and they're susceptible to parasites, or what? You know, that's another big thing that people have been speculating a lot. Um, people think that the the parasite is udonium, udinium, mm-hmm. and like velvet. Yeah, yeah, that that thing can actually photosynthesize. So uh, it's in it's in all the water column, but right. if it's not on the fish, it's surviving on light. But as soon as it finds a host, it then leaves the photosynthesis behind and then starts sucking on the fish. Um, well, why does it like beta macrostoma the most? Because I've got 10 other species and they don't go on anyone else. And it's the same water and same everything. I, I don't know why it loves macrostoma so much. Interesting. Um, but yeah, that's the number one killer for that fish. So that's why, and I feel that if you do too many water changes, the fish gets ick faster and that completely might be a myth, but in my practical experience, that's how it works. Well, you know, think about this, like here's maybe something you could take away from the natural habitat. I mean, typically 
their natural habitat is is what it's like little pools in the rainforest right so mm-hmm. there's not a lot of water movement or a lot of water exchange except maybe when it rains and maybe when the nearby streams overflow so maybe they're ecologically adapted or, or genetically adapted over eons to not like variations in their environment perhaps that's maybe the reason so maybe when you're changing water it's like whoa they're not they're not programmed to adapt to that type of change i mean could that be that might be one and the other one i think is the the subtle temperature difference um, that the new water that you're putting in the tank has that mm-hmm. little bit of water the temperature difference i think can cause them to stress out and that's when the this parasite attacks oh wow um, or maybe there as soon as there's a temperature difference the the protective layer of mucus that they have gets affected and that's when this parasite can can penetrate through that mucus not not really sure yeah now what other beta species do you breed um, so right now i only have beta macrostoma and beta mm-hmm. hendra mm-hmm. have amazing. you ever kept cocina have you ever kept that one cocina yeah Coconut. I don't know why I call it cocina. My, my French. Uh, well, th- yeah, that's that's when you're getting into furniture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. yeah exactly. Uh, it, I I tell everyone, I'm like, does not matter how, how you say it because these are not I'm English terrible. words to start with. Right, Latin is Latin. Right? Yeah. So, uh, I have kept it in the past, and it's very similar to Betahendra. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. That's one I've been itching to keep. And I'm thinking that's a really neat fish. But, Very beautiful fish, uh, yes. Yeah. Now, you know, I don't think there's any bad-looking beta. I, mean, I don't think so. Really yeah. it, you're kind of like really splitting hairs to try to find the coolest of cools. And I mean, there's there's really just not a, a bad fish in any of those, um, in any of them. Super true. What about guarmies? Do you keep any guarmies? Have you bred any like the sparklings or the chocolates or croaking? Are those appeal to you or is that like, eh, not that into it? Oh, no. Uh, back in India, when, you know, we would go on a collecting trip where we drank beer and caught fish, that's nice. what we would net. <laughs> guarmies. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I've kept a lot of those and bred a lot of those because that's what was mainly available in India at that time. Uh-huh. So you needed a breeding project. You went, collected some and then tried your hands on that. Well, what about Daniels? Did you keep Daniels a lot uh, as a kid? Um, it's like one of my favorite underappreciated fishes, particularly the zebra Daniel. It's such a neat fish. Again, zebra Daniels, we find them in almost all the water bodies in India, uh, at least yeah. the central India, central to south. So, yeah, zebra Daniels were all-time favorite in our tanks. Yeah. You know, that, they're just that's a- something I wanted to, to really ask you about as well is, um, you know, we, we, uh, we definitely appreciate all the input and, and, uh, your experience with the breeding, but I think one often, uh, overlooked aspect is, you know, how'd you get into the hobby and what's the story there and, and, and tell us about that. Cause I think there's a really fascinating story about your, your time exploring and then, um, you know, seeing the indigenous fishes and, and things along those lines in India, can, can you, can you like take us on that journey from from when you started to to now? Sure, yeah. Um, so I come from a very small place in the middle of the India, so right the the center part of India. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how many of the listeners remember the Union Carbide tragedy. Oh yeah, tragedy. Bhopal. I think yep, it was. Bhopal. Yeah. Yep. So um, the place I grew up is literally like four or five hours 
road trip from Bhopal. Um, so that's where I'm from. And wow. uh, up until I was in 12th grade, which is the final year of school. I don't know what you call that here. Senior. Uh, senior. Yeah, senior. Yeah. So 12th grade is when my my dad worked for a bank and he then got transferred. So we moved with him and he went to a bigger city. Uh, again, the the same general central India area. Um, and that's where there were a lot of aquarium shops. So as a kid, I was really fascinated by the fish. And I would go to the our municipality has these really big 20 feet wide uh, wells. And mm-hmm. somehow there were fish in them. Um, <laughs> I don't know how, but we would try to catch them using a small hook. And sometimes we would catch it, bring it home, put that in a you know, I'm trying to hide it from my mom so that she doesn't see it. And <laughs> somewhere That's in the backyard. That's a fish keep up for yep, yep. Yeah. That's what we do. And then at night it's fine. In the morning it's dead. And I'm sitting there crying. And now my mom is trying to figure out why am I crying. A lot of those episodes. Um, but when I moved to this bigger town in, <clears throat> excuse me, 2006, um, is, when, <laughs> is when I met my current not my current wife. I only have one wife. <laughs> my wife. But she's, she's also current, though. Yeah, she is current. also current. That, that's right. Um, and then she, she and I would go to a lot of these aquarium stores. There were five or six aquarium stores. And I would just spend hours there. Um, yeah. And I literally just, I'm like, oh, here's a customer. You want to sell them fish? Don't worry about it. I'm going to sell them fish. And I would become the salesman and I would try to sell nice. them the fish and I would bag it. And and then finally, one of those aquarium fish shops um, owners said, well, do you have a tank at home? I'm like, no, I don't. He's like, all right, someone returned this one. Go take it. So that's how I got my first tank. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. A cool story. That's cool. And then when, when was your first fish that you bred? Like actually, because I mean, breeding, I think of you, I think of fish breeder. Is that safe to say you're a fish breeder? You're, you're a hobbyist, but you're a breeder. You breed fish. That's your thing. Am I wrong? Or, or are you more of an overall kind of fish breeding guy and just happens to breed fish? Or are you like, no, I'm into breeding? <laughs> well, I am actually into the behavior of the fish. You know? mm-hmm. I, I love watching these little things like what i told you about l134s that the female comes and she spends some time and tries to convince the male and then the male lets her in those are the things that i love watching and love noticing and then write about them that that's my favorite really helps that helps so many people too those kind of first-hand observations you just don't see that enough these days in the hobby Um, same with better macrostoma so so exactly what you said that, that observation observing that behavior and then writing about mm-hmm. it that's my favorite thing that's what i love doing um now, now the, the thing that i think is interesting too is is every time i'm checking out your feed there's different fish i'm like how many different species does this guy have at any given time like how many <laughs> different fish are you working with i mean there's oh, now you're in killie fish and this day and the other day there's different types of catfish what do you how many species are you have in your fish room right now i can't count um, <laughs> that's awesome. too many to that's count awesome. I think but I, I, I don't discriminate let's just put it that way. I don't discriminate a lot of people are like oh well I keep cichlid or I keep catfish I, my fish room place. doesn't discriminate yeah I've got everything I love that. from discus to zebra plecos to bedas to killifish to plecos catfish apistos everything see that's cool because uh, so many people tend to specialize which is which is fine 
but they specialize in a fish and you think, wow, it would be neat if they did some other things. You're dealing with all kinds of different fish. Now, killifish, you and I have in common, we, but, and I know Johnny does too. We love killies. What, what got you into those and how many species have you, have you kept and do you have a favorite one right now? Oh, yeah. You asked the right question there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my favorite. And then I'm going to ask you another fish. tougher one. Sure. Okay. My, my favorite killifish species is Moima kui, uh, Kiligrande. So it's a, it's a, it's a genus from Peru, and I went and I collected that, that fish. It's oh it, wow! It's it's a really big killifish. So it's about five inches, and it eats other killifish. Wow, it's a monster. Yeah. Nice. Is it like um, a big rivulus or something, or what? What does it look like? It's. You'll have to Google that. It's the the yeah, genus is Moima, M O E M A, um, and it's an yeah, annual yeah. killifish. And the the eggs are really big, almost the size of, well, not as as big as like pleco eggs, but uh, still pretty big for a killifish. Um, and it it's found in the southern side of Peru, um, Puerto oh, Maldonado. That's a pretty fish. Yeah, it looks like a terolibus sort of. Wow, that's really pretty. Yeah, so wow. when I saw that okay. fish, I was like, oh, my God. And okay. in about 2013 or 2014, I got an opportunity to go and collect that fish. Um, but I couldn't oh, bring cool. any back, and they're not in the hobby here. Uh, so I'm just waiting for someone else to go collect some, bring them back, or maybe I'll have to go one of these days <laughs> yeah, <laughs> once COVID is over and then collect them some for myself and bring them back. But that's my favorite species in killifish. And that um, looks like an annual. Is it an annual? It, it is like an, an annual. annual to me. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think the the most interesting thing to observe would be that how does that fish grow so big in such a short life? I was just gonna I was thinking that I'm like, God, for yeah. an annual, it's five. That's a big that's fish. That's a yeah. I mean, you would probably see some growth every day. Well, you know what's weird is I remember reading a study on on annual nothobranchius not long ago, mm-hmm. and and literally the conclusion of this scientific paper was that. I forgot the percentage, but a huge percentage of the fish's life is actually in the egg. Like they live longer in mm. the egg than they do when they're actually hatched out. That so is they're really making good up point. for lost time. Yeah. yeah. So they're designed to reproduce. That's yeah. that's their whole yep. ecological thing. Um, how long do they live? Do these are these short lived fish or do they live uh, think, more than a year? No, I think six to eight months would be would be normal yeah. for them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I'm in, I'm into killies. I, the annuals I like are like the um, neolibius and the sinolibius. I like those, mm-hmm. those. Those are fun ones. I never nothobranchius are neat fish, but I never really got super into them. Mm. And I love the the top spawning killies. I love the fundal pancharks oh, yeah. and the aphiosimian. My favorite is epiplates um, because it's not an annual. It's a long lived fish, but yeah, I've been working with some of those. And right now, it's the one of the few fish I have right now. So I'm doing a big remodel at my house, but yeah. I've got these fish. And I've raised these guys, you know, I'm in my second generation and I'm just, I'm just loving these fish. And I'm thinking, why aren't killifish more popular? And I, and I, we've talked about this before and oh, Johnny man. and I have had this talk. I want to hear your feedback, consumer. Why do you think they're not more popular? I wonder if it jives with what we think. Because they should be super popular in the hobby. There's something for yeah. everyone. Uh, I think there are multiple factors. The first one is there are not enough people showing them off. So that's how, you know... Let's talk about why is aquascaping so popular right now or in the last five, 10 years? Because so many people mm. have been doing it. They've been showcasing it. It's uh, visual. That's, yeah, that's getting more people into into doing it. Um, yeah. How many people do you see on Instagram, for example, talking about killifish? 
you. <laughs> a, a few, a few of yeah. us. So yeah. not many people know about it. And when something is so elusive or, you know, you don't know about it, um, no one just gets into it. That's, well, I think, the shortest, well, think, simplest answer. Well, and I think also there's, there's, there's the other problems that I see, and I think Johnny agrees with me on this, is that you'll see these fishes. They're, most of them are only known by Latin names, which obviously mm, people like yeah. bungle the pronunciation constantly. So it's really hard to go into a fish store and say, do you have any... Uh, a scriptolebius, uh, white yeah. eye, mm. FEM 33. And, you know, no one knows what that means. They're all geographic yeah. monikers at the end of the fish. So they don't have a common name, but that, that's fine. I mean, neither are most corals, but, but, but I think it's that. And I think that, I think people have this myth about them that they're hard to keep, that they require specific conditions, that they die quickly and which some do, but, mm-hmm. but I think there's a certain, like people don't know about it so they don't appreciate it. they see the picture and they're like oh this is amazing and it only takes one photo of a fish in a nice setup i think also and, and johnny you can chime in here because i know we've had this conversation my, they're not uh, in the I right tank the, people don't show them the biggest one so there, there's a difference between having something that's set up for observation and for your enjoyment but we know that there's a there's a massive difference between a driver's car and something in the showroom. One is made to sell, and the other one is made to to, to you know abuse. Mm, and right. you know, so you have your fish, and you have your fish that you are observing, but that's probably not the best way to, uh, you know, you know, stoke the flame or or spark interest in a fish. Like you can take a beautiful photograph, but um, I really feel like it's the setting that really gets the interest. And, and if it's just not done or done well, um, a shoebox is just not wildly inspiring to most people yeah, uh, when right. you keep your fish in them. And so I think that's where a lot of the disconnect comes from. It's like, well, in order to be successful or enjoy this fish, I have to keep it in a test tube. Yeah. And you know, that's just <laughs> not really exciting. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think to show people hey, actually, you can put this fish in this other environment. And, um, you know, it, it needed something like what we do, not, not tooting our own horn, but what we do and what we've done with, with Blackwater and botanical-style aquariums is, is made them cool mm-hmm. uh, because we've made it acceptable uh, to have something that's not this, you know, perfectly manicured, you know, diorama. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think it's just a, a continual mental shift. Um, so, you know, Killifish in five years will probably be really hot. Yeah, I think it's it's celebrating the environment they come from too, because that's that's the beauty of like playing off what you just said, Johnny. Is what we do is like, hey, you can replicate many of the physical and even some of the chemical aspects of the habitat that they come from. And man, the habitat's really interesting of these fishes, and it's contextual. Like if you're seeing these fish in the context from where they come it's like wow they come from these temporal pools and these jungle streams and holes in the mud and i mean that's pretty cool right i mean and, and as a breeder anybody can i mean anybody can breed these this could be the first fish just about anybody's bread i mean when you agree somewhere i mean these are not hard to breed no they're not not at all i mean they're <laughs> all you have to do is put, put a mop in there yeah male female and a yeah. mop or male female in a cup full of cocoa peat and there yeah. you go i mean and you could ship the eggs all over the world yeah. because they have long enough incubation periods. Just These last week, I widely got, distributed. Yeah, just last week I got some from Aruba, uh, from oh, Transformulan, cool. right? So, oh yes, yes. But to 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 add to something to what Johnny was saying, 
he's absolutely right i mean th- these kind of mental shifts as you call them uh, scott mm-hmm. don't happen overnight or it's no. not what a, what one article or one blog post or one post on instagram can do i mean you have mm-hmm. been you have been blogging you have been uh, podcasting for last 2 3 years and you have been talking about the same thing again and again yep. and that has what made it somewhat common for people to hear about these words blackwater botanicals tannins and now people are getting more accepting of these terms uh, more accepting to to experiment and um, they're trying to learn about them too yeah, they're not just it, taking our word for it exactly you know and, that's what's important and, and like johnny said there's a joke in the killifish community that well next killifish convention is going to be uh, sponsored by starlight and starlight yeah. is the you know the company <laughs> the that makes the plastic people. containers yeah because, <laughs> because that's what they use and i'm not blaming them i mean it works of right not. if if you're trying to breed killifish and if you're trying to spawn them that works uh, but at the same time killifish community is also at blame here because yes how much are they doing for example what you're doing boy kind of thing yeah no, i agree right and they're great people and they know so much oh no no doubt about that and they're constantly on the forum i go on the the, the killifish forums on facebook these guys are constantly complaining about how come not enough new people are coming in mm-hmm. and there's no you, you just it, don't inspire people by doing yeah. enough it, you know doing doing what works is an inspiration yes. you yes. have to do something more you really have to display it you really have to try um you know uh, it's just you can find this in anything you know it, it, a, a grilled cheese sandwich isn't inspiring yeah you know that's that's not the thing where you're like this is a culinary masterpiece it's it's enough <laughs> it'll feed a hungry kid it'll shut them up yeah. it's by no means the thing that you go this is the pinnacle of achievement in in all the culinary world <laughs> right and- although that could be argued but it's just it's not <laughs> the poster child for yeah. it and so doing enough it's like well yeah i did my chores no achievement it's what's what's the thing that you need to do to show the joy in it and most people sitting in a in a room of a bunch of guys uh, sharing sterilite boxes filled with uh, with fish and eggs it's just, you know it's just not cool yeah. um although it is really cool like that's the thing you know it's 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 really cool um i think that they just need to explore both sides of the hobby um because it becomes a little myopic you know it's like well yeah You, this whole other viewpoint and, and but by the same token i remember summer last month you posted a video when your um, pseudohemiodon were in the eggs and you were separating you took like a video of you they were in like a petri mm-hmm. dish or something yeah. and you were separating the eggs with a like paintbrush and a and i was like that's an yeah. that's an art form in and of itself and that's appealing to some people you're interacting with your fish and you're doing something clinical or technical but you're also showing the fun of working with this stuff and with killies Yeah, I mean, showing the magic of annual killifish that have been incubating in peat moss or whatever for or core for six months suddenly hatching out and within a week they're recognizable as little fish. That that's a that that would really interest a lot of people and you don't need a lot of space. So I I you know, I give credit to the people that, you know, keep them in the little sterilized boxes, but you could as as Johnny said, there's a way to inspire. Yeah. that I think they can do more. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe elevate the architecture in, in which you keep the you know the fish in. You know, maybe mm-hmm. opt yeah. for the the dua neo glass air rather than the sterilite box. Right, and, right, and right. Sh- display it as if you care. Um, and so we have a you know uh, 
there's a there's some strange mis, strange misconceptions here, especially in the U.S. of of, of value and, and and how you're supposed to display things that you care about. You know, uh, you, you put your fine china out, never use it, kind of thing. But yeah, um, you know that's that's just perpetuated here. And I think though to get people interested, you have to treat it as if it's valuable. And and you know that's a really good point you made and. I have had this conversation with a lot of people and and in our area in Colorado we have uh, Ed Cray he's he's a senior most member in American Kalifish Association and him and I have mm-hmm. long debates on this topic um, and there are arguments to be made on both the sides the other side is that well kilifish is such a niche hobby that there are no sponsors no one sponsors no one gives money so if you go to American Kalifish Association's website it's the same website that people used to use in 90s right it's yeah like, similar website you, you for example you compare that to the website you have your website is the the an example of how the website should be visually whereas on the other side american kilfish association's website is totally from the 90s then they say that well because it is so easy to buy a sterilite container and just start you don't even have to buy a tank it makes it easier for anyone to start and i can right. see that point but at the same time i'm like what if that's also deterring some people from joining you know so it, it is well, it, I it mean, is yeah i, I would argue to, to to say that that's that's probably one of the bigger reasons yeah. um, if if you're just not giving it the value it disturb, or deserves the you know you lower the ben- the uh, barrier to entry so far and make it so accessible and so easy it's no longer conspicuous yeah there's there's no yeah. desire there's no allure there's nothing sexy about it there's not like this oh look at this thing that i'm doing it's like you know fish and shoebox so it's um it's i just think and you know there's there's some pretty strong data to back this one up that the world is as a different place than it was 20 years ago uh even five years ago or Mm -hmm. a year ago a year ago at this point it's really really different and um that side of people uh largely just doesn't exist you know so if it's not visual uh if it's not socially shareable um if it's not conspicuous um yeah you know it's probably doesn't have very much much leg it's just uh it's gonna be one of those things well look at guppies though like fancy guppies okay the fancy guppies today are amazing fish i mean they're really amazing guppy breeders have always you know, yeah, there's guys using, you know, bear tanks and stuff. But for some reason, guppy breeders always keep them in tanks with plants. They always mm-hmm. keep them in, you know, there's water sprite or, what, you know, they're not necessarily like a, a, a eye plaque winning aquascape. But they keep it in a reasonably attractive aquarium and the fish looks gorgeous in context. And you're like, yeah. But even guppies kind of have that old school appeal. But but at least they're putting it into a, a way that people can relate somehow mm-hmm. yeah, popularly. And I, and I just I can't help but think like. Some of these, like even the most basic killifishes, you know, the, the Australia or the any of the epiplates, the Gedi, you know, in an amazing, in, a, in an aquascaped tank or even just a nicely kept tank would just inspire so many people. And kids, it's your first fish you can breed yeah. with, with no effort. I mean, easy to breed, easy to raise. There's so much you can learn from keeping fishes like this. And for some reason... I, it's just it's like I want 2022 to be like the year of the killifish. I, I just I feel like we could do more to help get interest in that type of fish because it, there's so much for so many people that they've never heard of them. Yeah, they've just never heard of them. 
That baffles me. Well, you know the the name the name also um, yeah makes them sound like they die. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's true. That you know we we've talked about this before. You yeah, know, getting yeah. the paintings thing and like, can we just name it something different? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, how about this, Scott? You and I, we can at least start. So yes. I'm Let's honest. start on our own, and um, we'll see if uh, people get motivated. <laughs> I think so, Johnny. You take some amazing pictures of these fish, yep. and in context, and look what we get. Yeah, I mean, you can get people into this. I mean, I, this is a really funny thing too. I've noticed because I've traveled to a lot. We've all actually traveled to clubs and, and shows all over the country, and I've been, you know, visited people's fish rooms, and I see a lot of like the cichlids some of these people keep and stuff. And cichlids are super popular, but I look at a lot of them. They're just gray fish. Mm -hmm. I mean, with all due respect, some of these are just not attractive. They're just gray fish, but they have personality. You watch your mouth. I know, right? <laughs> I know a lot of cichlid hate. I mean, there's a lot of hate coming my way on this one. No, but but a lot of cichlids. I'm into gray fish, but a lot like tetras and things. But a lot of these fish aren't super exciting in appearance, but they're popular. Yeah, because they play up the personality, the fun of keeping them, the community, and the killifish has that same thing. Betas, same thing. Betas are popular, but with the weird thing with betas that I've noticed, and maybe you guys have both noticed this too, I'm sure, there's a swing towards more interest in the wild species now. It seems like you're not hearing as many people showing off their fancy. I mean, sure, there's funny fancy beta, beta breeds that are shown off, but a lot of what you're seeing on Instagram or social media, whatever, are the wild beta species. That's why it's so interesting that they're having their moment, you know? Yeah. There's a resurgence for sure with that one. I, I think it yeah. goes both ways. Like, I... I've always been more of the um, wild fish kind of guy, just in general. You have like, been, uh, yeah. yeah. But now I I really can appreciate the just ridiculous, over the top, you know, species that, that was that was bred specifically for you know just looking like it is. And yeah, I, I can I can get into that. I've I've the same thing with orchids. You know, certain cultivars. Like I've always been. You know, I'll, I'll take these non-hybridized, you know, the Neo-Phoenicia that's exactly this. Or now I'm like, oh, you know, I'll take the, the crazy, wonky, stupid thing that just would never have existed in the wild. Um, because I appreciate the work that went into it. But I think they're, they're totally different. I display them completely different. I have no desire to put a, uh, you know, some some crown tails, something or other, Dumbo, Finn, Koi, yada, yada, whatever. <laughs> Hot, you know, <laughs> right. version ninety-seven in a in a tank that looks even remotely natural. Um, right. It just yeah got got zero desire to do it. Fish fish has nothing to do with the wild. Um, you know, it's just it's not a thing. Uh, yeah. It's pellets. Well, you know, it just it doesn't even know. But you know, but you know, what's interesting too is like for some reason lately I've got interested in endlers, which is again it's basically what a lately? wild guppy. You've always lately, yeah. Long, yeah, I've always liked them. But I mean, I've like really been obsessed with them lately. And I just, I just keep one species, to, but uh, one variety. But I really like them. And I'm like, why do I like these fish so much? I'm not. It's just something about it that, that does it for me. There's nothing spectacular about them. But people are obsessed with them. And they have 40 different varieties. And th that's, I think, the beauty of the hobby. And like when I see, Sumer, when I see your breeding, you're, again, you're not just breeding one type of fish. You're, you've got 20 different things going on. And there's so much variety in this hobby. And what's fun is that you're, some of the fish you're breeding are not exactly common, you know? And I think it just goes to show you there's, there's room for everybody to explore. For sure. I mean, there's, a, and that's one reason that I keep so many species because I don't want to miss out on the fun. 
<laughs> yeah. I want to yeah. experience no, it I all. Agree. Yeah. Br- breeding FOMO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but you know, going quickly back to the killifish, uh, I just yeah. wanted to point out one thing that anyone who's listening to this and thinks that this is a very simple problem to solve. All you got to do is get some fish and then start them the right way. Don't keep them in sterilized boxes and you don't have to. So actually, American Killifish Association and, you know, we can badmouth them all we want. No, I'm a member. But, but, I, I, yeah, I, me I, too. Yeah. And but they have I'll tell such, you something about that in a minute too. Yeah. They have such an awesome program that if you become, yes. if you're not a member, if you become you a member, they, they send you free fish. Yeah. They're like, yeah. you go ahead and get started with this fish. Yeah. And it's actually the no. members like us who help the new members by sending them fish. And I've sent some some fish uh, myself so it's a really good community it's just that they have some older methods which if you can help change have a go at it that's true and the other thing that they need to do and boy i feel like we're bagging on the aka which i'm not because i do (laughs) love this i I was a member in 19 i was when i was a kid i was i was 14 when i first joined them but but the thing with the aka is i remember i didn't for a long time i got out of them then a few years ago i signed up again and I remember getting the Journal of the American Killifish Association. And I'll be damned if the articles were not the same kind of articles I saw when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Like, and they were like, they were about taxonomy. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you're just not going to bring new people into the hobby by showing cladograms of species distribution. It, I mean, yeah. I know there's some people that are really into it. And it's important that we study that. But boy, what about how to keep Epiplates sexfasciatus in a cool tank with, you know, that's what we need. Yeah, we need breeding videos of sumer separating eggs from Piedmont. That's yeah. what you need. You, know, you do that, and I'd, I'd argue to say if you charged for those eggs and, and they weren't free, people would care more. People yeah. just don't care about free. Yeah, you know, that, that's, that's uh, another yeah. thing. You know, if you charged charge more for the membership, um, you know, made it exclusive. That's what people want. People people don't want to just be included for no reason. They want to be included because they're special or earned it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. yeah, it's like the coral thing. I mean, I, I could see. You know, it becoming collectible, more collectible, just like corals are. I mean, I know we could have that discussion all day long, too. And we will with Jake at some point. But there's something that people love about collecting different species. And you can do that with killies. You can do that. And and I agree with you, Johnny. Like they're more expensive. We we value them more. I don't know. Maybe that's the thing. Yeah. I I think you should just make killies $95 a piece. Yeah. (laughs) That would drive a lot of people in. One male. That'll help the hobby. It would take off. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that. The, the, hey, guys, for some, <laughs> yeah, for some questions, I actually, because I solicited questions ahead of this one, I've got some yeah. for Sumer and some for Johnny. We do this traditionally. I try to get Johnny the, these weird questions, and I've got a couple weird ones for you, Sumer, but I'll start with an easy one. Sure. You ready? Yeah. Okay. This is from Cynthia in Fargo, North Dakota, and she asks, hey, Sumer, big fan of your videos. See, somebody actually reads the, sees your videos. Thank you. So what is a perfect first food for the majority of egg laying fishes i know it's a tough question because the size is very but she's saying what is, what is the perfect first food for the majority of egg laying fishes and what's the best way to culture it most broad of the question egg, that's a broad yeah question. <laughs> really broad question but most of the egg laying fish when when the eggs would hatch uh, the fry would come out with a yolk sac so for the first few days or even a week they're probably just consuming their yolk sac um, and as soon as they're done with with their yolk sac, they're perfectly big enough to go on baby brine shrimp. So my go-to is baby brine shrimp. I don't 
I don't really do much about micro worms or wilder worms or banana worms. Baby brine shrimp, the most nutritious, the hoofa content is through the roof. Baby brine shrimp. You know, I've got a slightly different answer. I'm going to go with quesadilla. Quesadillas are the first <laughs> option, best food. With extra uh, queso. Yeah, absolutely. Um, preferably a goat cheese. Um, <laughs> They're just a little messy, but other than that, it's ideal. <laughs> well, Johnny, you're not getting away with this unscathed. I've got one for you. Uh, this, <laughs> <It> is, <was laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is from Joy from Manassas, Virginia. And Joy asked, hey, Johnny, big fan of your scapes. There you go. See, big fan of your scapes. What do you feel is the most underserved section of the aquascaping hobby? Boy, I don't know what she means by that, but I'm going to let you have that one. Wow, that's a that's a big that's one a broad as well. question. Underserved. I guess she means maybe underrepresented. Yeah, maybe she means underrepresented. Maybe it's something people aren't doing. And, and, and Sumer, you're going to chime in too, but I'm curious. I think that's what she means. I, unfortunately, that's all it says. Jeez. Uh, well, okay. So, I mean, my answer is going to be as broad as the as the question. Although I do love the question, and and I love that people are thinking about you know where where can they go to explore. And I think that that's really what the directive yeah, is here. Yeah, that's like, a big. Where, where should we be exploring? What should we be doing? Um, I think more natural is better, um, and I think that we should be exploring more of of the natural environments. I, as much as there's, is this Renaissance that's, that's happening right now and people are exploring blackwater botanicals. I think that that's the area that is just still not represented. And brackish, well enough. brackish, I mean, brackish. Uh, yeah, I think we've done enough of that, but um, yeah, you we know, so no kidding. Um, brackish <laughs> is, is definitely an area, but it, all natural habitats, I think just doing it a more natural way it's yeah. just not done done enough. I, I'm not saying it's not done well because it's being done extremely well by the biotope guys. people. Yeah. But um, I think that it could be done more. And and with anything, you know, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And uh, I think we can all do it really well. And um, you know, it's it's just right for the taking. So that would be the area. All right. And Sumer, what's your what's your thought on that? Do you have any thoughts on that one? You know, I'm not really into or I shouldn't say I'm not into aquascaping. It's, I, I'm just it's not, not creative, creative enough for aquascaping. Let's just put well, it that Well, you're, you're operating oh, that's a in a different area. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I love growing plants, and I'm actually currently working on a, on a big 100-gallon planted tank, but uh, I, I'm interested in growing the plant. And again, looking at them, how they grow, you change things and how they adapt and things like that. But the design aspect of it, that that eludes me, so... Okay. Well, I've got one for you too, Sumer. Here's another sure. one. Um, this is from Dave in Red Red Redmond, Indiana. Never heard of that town. That's good to hear. Glad glad to see that. Dave says, "Okay, Scott, agree with a lot of what you say about repatriating fishes to their natural conditions. But what does a breeder like Sumer think we should be doing with most fishes? Should we be adapting them to the?" conditions that we can most easily provide or should we be trying to match the wild habitats from which they came which is better and why Ooh, that's a tough question good question too because in other words question you get the gist of it i mean we always talk about would there be some benefit of giving these fishes you know throwback conditions like you know zebra daniels take them back to silted water with a slow moving area like high temperature would you get a better 
would you get better breathing or would you, or is it better just put them in your tap water with yeah. any fish? But yeah. Um, that That's a wonderful question actually. And that is one thing that I've debated multiple times with multiple people. And mm-hmm. there's just not enough that you can do. If you want to simulate, there's only so much you can do. You cannot right. bring uh, Amazon river in your house. You cannot yeah. mimic the, the pressure changes, the clouds that, come and go the you know those are kind of the things that you cannot so the only thing you can do is the physical things that you put in the tank that's that's mm-hmm. the extent of what you can do and if in your mind that is replicating the natural habitat right that's not correct that's part of it right. there are so many other things you can have that, aspects of it yeah right. yeah um so if if you are doing that that's really good and if that helps the fish have a go at it but at the same time there are things that don't make sense for you to do. So, for example, in some of these tanks where, let's just say, better macrostoma, right? If I had to put a layer of clay mud at the bottom um, and let my fish fish breed, the fry would come out and then imagine me trying to catch fry in that mud bottom. It's not practical. It's just not practical. Yeah. Okay. Right. So It's not harmful. It's just hard for you to be exactly um, methodical. Yeah. Right. And because my tank is only 20 gallons in, in, in its volume, uh, the way the chemistry is going to change and would it be enough water volume for it to stabilize? How long would it take? Uh, those are some of the things that I just don't know. And, and I'm not sure if right. I want to experiment uh, to get those answers because right. the way I'm doing it right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's yeah I'm, I, I, I'm happy observing the fish in a bare bottom tank right now. So, yeah. It's just the way it's individual preference. I think you know, there's no right or wrong answer Correct. in this hobby. I think uh, people do what what they they like. No, no. One of the questions I've always had, and and, and Johnny and I've had this discussion before, when you're raising fry. Mm-hmm. Now, I've always felt like for, I know this from killifish keeping. I've had fry that I didn't know were in a tank, yeah. and one day I'll be looking, and all of a sudden. <laughs> I'm seeing a bunch of juveniles with color. I'm like, where did these, I haven't had killifish in this tank for three months. What? Yeah. They've been eating something. They're living off something. So yep. I thought, would it not be beneficial occasionally to go back to those old little, I used to call them jungle tanks when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I'd have all the plants and leaves and all that stuff in there. And I just throw the fry, the fish yep. in there. And if they breed, is there some benefit to that type of rearing of some species? Like I'm thinking specifically, maybe even your catfish, your, um, Maybe not necessarily the pseudohemiodon, but 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 maybe the L species, plecos, just a bunch of leaves, botanicals, plants, and stuff. Let them feed off natural food. Can it work, or do Absolutely. you think it's really yeah, controlled feeding? I mean, you can do it both ways, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh no, I I have a few tanks where I have some Apistogramma voli and Apistogramma lilingi that mm-hmm. that I collected in Peru, and they are in that kind of a tank. It's a jungle tank. It's full of botanicals. I mean, there's probably a four-inch thick layer of botanicals. All those, oh, wow. uh, the pods that you sent me. Uh, mm-hmm, what are those mm-hmm. pods called? I forget. The round things. There's so pods. many different ones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Built. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's full of those things. And I every now and then, I just throw in some uh, live black worms in there. And, of course, the black worms would go and hide. And then... Yeah, so I, I let them be in there and in the last year or so, I've seen so many batches of fry come and go. Some get eaten by the previous generation, some survive. Right. Uh, yeah, so it's just, it's on its own, right? So that's one way to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I, yeah. I, I totally do that for some species. Uh, and for some species, 
mm, I I prefer to be a lot more involved. Um, yeah, a lot more controlled. Um, so yeah, it it just depends on uh, species or what I feel like. I do have a tank, so my zebra pleco tank, right? The mm-hmm. fry were about a month old before I even noticed them. I didn't even know my zebra pleco had babies the first time. So oh, wow. yeah, that that also happens. And and uh, Johnny, do you have any thoughts on that? Because I know we've talked about this a few times. Uh, well, you know, I'm. It's an interesting one because I I don't want to pretend like I'm an expert at, at, at breeding. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's two different ways of thinking. One is, and it's about the end result. You know, one is you're 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 manufacturing fish, and the other one is you're just observing them in in a as close as you can get. Uh, environment to you know something that's more natural everything else is in between um so if, if you're simply trying to just rear as many fish as possible or just observe the behavior with nothing else although that could be argued is it is it natural behavior, natural or, behavior or not mm-hmm. yeah you know and so i you know i i can't argue that either way because one i've not collected the fish i don't know what what they behave like in in the natural habitat but i can say that observing fish because that's what i'm really into as well is is the is the natural habitat and and observing the fish interacting with the the quote-unquote aquascape and the physical environment yeah. the physical environment and so the thing where i start started to see um you know behavioral changes and and um you know there's just one particular fish and it's not too long ago where i was just sold was um oh what, what do they call it the the nanostomus keys like the you know the little sort of hockey stick pencil fish mm-hmm. yeah best and, fish ever yeah and I, I did this layout and it i you know did the wood coming into the tank and like this this oblique angle and i put the fish in there and i've kept this fish many a time before and it all of a sudden started behaving differently it started working its body into the wood at the same angle you couldn't even find the fish um and the way that they would swim and interact with one another and the water flow and it was just everything was very different i was like this is what this fish does Mm -hmm. like that was interesting to me and so it's like you're talking about you know leaf fish or these these other fish that have this purpose for their design right that's interesting to me is is why is the fish designed the way it's designed um and now we can we can get into you know the, the whole creation aspect or, or or fish doing what they do or whatever but you know what why is the fish this way and i like to observe it doing what it does well um you know and, and we know a lot of things don't necessarily thrive in the environments that they thrive in because they like them uh, even the same with breeding. And we use this example for corals. Corals don't like living where they live. They live there because nothing else can. It's the <laughs> same reason why uh, a, a cactus like uh, occupies whatever region it does in, in, in the desert. It doesn't like it there. It it knows that a palm tree can't live there. You know, it knows that, uh, you know, my, my begonias can't do that. So yeah. that's why it's there and it's adapted. It's created. It's yeah. done these things. And so... Um, for the breeding aspect, I have no idea. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what's what's optimal or, or yeah. what the purpose is behind it. So, no. And, and to add a little more to what Johnny was saying, there are things yeah. that the fish need, 
and then there are things that we as hobbyists think they need for example right. can can plecos breed without caves no can pseudohemiodon feel comfortable without sand no but do discus need driftwood yeah i don't know maybe maybe not can they right. live without the driftwood sure so th- that's what i'm trying to say there are things that they need and then there are things that you think they need right. if you're I... questioning about what you think they need have a go at it experiment see if they like it or not if they don't take it out exactly if they like it put more of that but then there are things that they need and there's literature people have made videos in the wild and you know they need it so you can't do without it or or is it like johnny says they go there because nobody else is there hey, yeah. this is a safe place to raise my fry i can lay my eggs here because no one's going to eat them so maybe johnny's theory on that is is absolutely right too it's just right. it's exploiting what's available to them mm-hmm. because nobody else is biofilm yeah. cover leaves because nothing is competing against them right you know it's that's the way nature works so, yeah yeah it's no. a path of least resistance in, in many of those things. Yeah, yeah exactly exactly yeah, do, do they need it no and are they better off without it maybe yeah uh, you know if there's if there's nothing to compete with then it becomes you know uh insignificant it's, yeah it's just not a contributing exactly. factor anymore yeah. um so yeah and, and these I, are the things that have evolved over hmm, thousands of millions of years eons. yeah 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 i mean why, why is yeah. zebra pleco colored zebra you know what well, right. there's no other fish right. that yeah what is that dazzle camouflage or is there another thing that exactly. cleared those depth in rio zingu that makes them feel more comfortable or what i don't know exactly <laughs> so, exactly i mean but I, i mean even johnny was talking about the the oblique swimming angle of the pencil fish why mm-hmm. did they do that because they feed on alicthonus things from the forest the insects that fall into the water seeds yeah. and things it's then an adaptation why does the neon tetra have its stripes a certain way because birds from above can't make it out yeah. at a certain angle you know it's the same thing but interesting the adaptation versus what we feel they need to have got one more for you this is a this is a, actually one for both of you guys but uh, this is from Brett McGrear in Dublin Ireland he said hey Johnny hey Scott uh, very excited to see Sumer I'm president of the local chapter of the Sumer Tiwari fan club here in Dublin so, so so you got a fan club and he said what I'd really like to know is what is a great species of epistogramma to start with for someone that would like to breed them why and what size tank would you use and what should i do to get a pair hmm uh that that's a really good question um i i think the the best answer is whatever you can get easily in wherever you are from whatever your local fish stores or your local hobbies have uh, mm-hmm. because with the pistogrammas that's usually the problem uh not necessarily here in the US because we have access to so many different species we have so many right. awesome people that are holding on to these species but in other countries like for example India or um, South Africa or Pakistan Bangladesh Sri Lanka they don't have access to a lot of these species so the only thing they have is a pistogramma cacatoids triple red or one of those variants right. that that are famous in the hobby so everyone just has that um, right. so yeah no 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 particular answer no particular species whatever you can get your hands on just start with that a 10 gallon tanks work great um up to 20 even a 40 breeder would work whatever you have no less than 10 10 gallon is what i would say start with a mm-hmm. with a pair or a trio and just watch them lay eggs um and another cool tip 
uh, you change their diet and the color of their eggs change. <laughs> that's my <laughs> only a breeder would know that. Only that, a breeder would know. That's that. the funniest thing to do with them. Uh, I, I change their diet and I'm like, all right, no let's eggs. let's watch the color of their eggs. What color is it this time? You know, you're really good when that's the kind of observation you make. It's it, it, most people would be, oh, the fish changes color. You, it's oh, the color of their eggs because they spawn. <laughs> yeah, like, thanks for rubbing that in, Sumer. <laughs> <That's really laughs> Johnny, funny. what's your favorite? Do you have a favorite uh, pisto? And, and Sumer, do you have a favorite pisto? And then Johnny, what's your favorite? My favorite, I'm gonna say, is Lulingi because I collected that myself. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, sure. I like Borelli. Uh, yeah, that's that's a really pretty one too. It's a pretty one. I don't have particularly a favorite, so this is this is this is a funny one, and I'm going to add in here uh, a very good friend of mine, Kevin Gaines. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, really knowledgeable guy, especially in the marine aquarium side of the, the hobby. Um, we we discuss this because we'll we'll photograph fish together, and 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 we'll we'll talk at nauseum about you know fish stuff. Um, and he's like, I, I swear to God, man, every time you walk by a fish or every time we're pulling a fish in or every time we're looking at a fish, especially if we're in a more of a, like either a breeding program and we're looking at something or we're in a warehouse, he goes, every fish you always say, oh, my God, look at how amazing this fish is. This is my favorite. <laughs> and so I, I don't actually have a favorite really fish of anything. And then also, especially when you come to the pistogramma, they're all really cool. And so my suggestion is uh, – very much what Sumer said, get what you can get and um, don't allow some of the, uh, the the other influences that are out there diminish the value of the fish just because it happens to be accessible, um, right. especially if it's something to get you into one of the more rewarding aspects of the hobby. So hmm. get whatever you can get, even if it's the triple net, you know, like just, yeah. just, it's popular for a reason. It's a it's beautiful fish. fish. Oh yeah. So, yeah. I don't, you know, and I've, I've kept many of them. I don't know if there's any one that's ever stood out to me as just so vastly different that I'm like, well, you have to take this one over that one. They're all, they've, they've all got similar behaviors, mm-hmm. um, but they're all really rewarding. So that, I would just get whatever you, you, you can. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I, and that's interesting that, he asked a question about epistos because they're, they've just become so popular. I mean, lately, it just seems like that's just a, a sub hobby in and of itself. There's so many of them. Um, now, this is a question that I've had for you, Summer. I'm going to ask mine. Uh, and, is the, and, and, and I'm going to ask this of you, Johnny. Is there like uh, a holy gra- Yeah, right? Is there a holy grail kind of, I hate that word, but is there, is there a really a, a fish that you have been, you really want to get and breed and which and why? Like yes. what species would it be if there's one you really want to bring? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I spent a lot of time uh, looking at the fish I have and looking at the fish that I don't have. So yeah, so that's I, me. Yeah. Um, one of the fish that I really, really, really want to work with. Uh, and I have worked once in the past with that fish, that genus, not, not all the species that I want. Uh, the genus is Trimetocara, uh, T-R-E-M-A. T O C A R A, Tremanto Cara. It, it's a rift lake cichlid. Yeah. Um, and this is a fish with superpower. Uh, and the way, I, the reason I say superpower is because usually, th- you know, when you talk about frontosas or other cichlids that are found uh, really in the deep waters in, mm-hmm. in rift lakes, the way they're brought up is 
you know, every few days they raise them a few feet, right? They put them in, in big cages and then they raise those cages a few feet every few days. And that's how like they... Like Antheus. Yeah. Right. Because you can't bring them out. Their eyes are going to pop out because yeah, yeah, of the yeah. pressure change. Well, Trematocara is different. They have a superpower that they can change their osmotic pressure at their will. So at night, they come like 300, 400 feet up to eat the crustaceans or the, the little bugs at the the banks of Lake Tanganyika. And then as the day starts to come up, as the sun starts to come up, they go deep down 300, 400 feet in a, in, in, in a jiffy. Right. Wow. So they can change the pressure. They have they have some really cool sensors in their body. They can manage those things. Um, yeah. Go ahead. That's cool. Yeah, that it's have they amazing. been bred? In, have they been yes. bred in captivity? Yes, there, huh. there's there's variable uh, that uh, yeah, some that's hobbyists, the one you always find. Yes, right. the, that that's the species that people in hobbies in Germany. It reminds me of a cardinal fish. It reminds me of a, of a saltwater cardinal fish. Yeah. Sorry. Um, German breeders have been breeding it for a long time. Um, hmm. And I was lucky enough, Butch from uh, Southeast, Southeast Cichlids was um, able to get me a batch about four or five years ago. And I kept uh-huh. it. And then we were supposed to move and I was getting married. And I think I ended up giving it to some local hobbyists. And I don't know what happened to that species. Uh-huh. And I have not been able to find it ever since. Um, there are nine or ten different species uh, yeah. in that in that genus um, and they all look different too right like, they all look different like, everyone is different like, yeah and one of them looks the same and actually there is yeah. a species that that is named macrostoma uh, so it's started oh, macrostoma yeah it's a little bigger one interesting yeah max pole and bullinger belgian scientists i think yes, it was their yeah, those guys thing. know their stuff <laughs> yeah it was that's their cool so that's probably so that's your that's your that's your your one fish you know you know what i'd love to see i, I I would love to see more of in the hobby. There's a, a there's a few genus, and I talked to Mike Tucanardi about this. There's small knife fishes in the. I'm, I'm going to butcher the genus name, but it's like hypo hypopopus hypopus. Mm. They're they're like maybe they get four or five inches long, little knife fishes that are found in the Amazon. Not only are they never in the hobby, they're nocturnal. They're they're not chromatically fascinating fish, but they're knife fish, so they're cool, and. I think those would be amazing to not only to keep, but to breed. That would yeah. be a really cool fish to have a small knife fish in the hobby would just be amazing. Um, but I, I think knife fishes are so interesting and, and, you know, they, they commercially produce black ghost knife fish in, in mm. Asia, but, oh, yeah. but they're not like breeding them and pairing them. From what I understand, they just put them in pools and they just collect the fry. Mm-hmm. I, I could be totally wrong on that, but so I'm, I'm curious what the courtship is like, how they spawn, how they, yeah. do they care for the egg, you know, that's something we just don't know. Um, so that's my dream fish. Johnny, what's yours? Ah, this one's tough. This one's really tough. I don't I don't know if I necessarily have a like a dream fish, but there are fish that I've not gotten to work with just because of various limitations, or I want to work with again because it's been so long. And yeah. so some of them are pretty basic. Like um it's just funny because Sumer was talking about cichlids and a fish that I really enjoyed back in the early 2000s um, was the uh, the Alto Lamprologus calvus. Oh and, yeah! Oh, calvus are cool. They look. Primitive. I just yeah. I just yeah. love to work with them again. Um, yeah. You know, I I, I I did a lot of Africans um, back then, and so you know, we either had the the ten or the forty breeders or the twenty breeders. You know, just those flats. Um, 
and and we work with with all those different fish and um that's one that like i just kind of want to go back and do um but then again i just i haven't really had the time or the space um i've got some other small fish like i uh, funny enough because sumer has both of them um you know the uh, macrostoma is is one the hendra is another so both of those beta yeah. um and then just a fish i've never gotten to breed is um it's just, you know, discus. Hmm. I, I just yeah. never had the space to do it. Um, you know, not where I'm, I'm having to dedicate. And this, this is the woe is me story, right? I, you know, I, when I do an aquarium, I'm either doing something that's very specific to something that I, I'm enjoying and I only have the time for the one. Everything else is commissioned. So it's, it's, hey, Johnny, can you do this tank for us? It's for this article or, hey, it's for this cover shot or, hey, it's for this product. And so... Um, you know, the only time I really get to do a tank for myself is, is the, the, the odd one for Tannin. Uh, other than that, you know, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't done an aquarium for myself in, in 15 years. Um, so, you know, I think if I had the, the resources to just spend time doing fish stuff, um, I would go back to, you know, tanging you and cichlids and mm -hmm. just, that would be I fun for me. I think just in general, I, I've never, I, I'm first to admit, I've never done a Rift Lake cichlid tank, like we're just assorted, you know, Embuna or whatever, or, or just various Tanganyikan cichlids or Malawi or whatever. I, I think those are really cool fish. And just for whatever reason, I guess because they always needed larger tanks. And when I was a kid, I never had a large tank. And, you know, and then by the time I got into large tanks, I was into reef aquariums. So it was like, I just never properly address the whole African Rift Lake cichlid thing. And I think that would be really fun to have a big 200 gallon tank with assorted cichlids. I think that'd be fun. It It's a lot of fun. I, I always you did a lot of those tanks for ADG, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, so I got to do a lot of them with ADG, um, you know, and, and Mike is just a beast when it comes to those things. Um, you know, and I, or, you know, back in the early 2000s is, you know, had a, a project working on Frontosa. So you had like the, you know, really cool move Frontosa and, and uh, really really cool stuff like that um and i was i was pretty stoked on like just the simple stuff a lot of cara um like malarai and, mm -hmm. and you know you're just your yeah. really basic bright fish and yeah they're beautiful their their behavior was rewarding the fish were easy yeah. to breed and um it was fun to share them with people and um you know back then accessibility was still kind of an issue people like couldn't afford the the exotic saltwater stuff and so you know you had the poor poor man's reef tank was was filled with yeah. uh you know malawi cichlids and, and now some of them are 200 dollars a piece <laughs> so right. yeah go, there go we figure. go figure um yeah. so i'd love to do that so I'm, I'm torn you know i'm i'm, I'm house shopping now and, and once i get into a place uh certainly going to do something larger so you know we're going to work around a 240 and, and I, I see you doing discus in altum yeah yeah probably oh, yeah. Yeah. and sumer you you work with altums also right mm -hmm. uh, yeah or, are you breeding them currently or not yet or trying to <laughs> yeah that's um, an awesome no but but just the journey because as soon as they're they're bred and now you have fried then it's all over right? you know, game over so it's, it's, the, it's, <laughs> it's the journey Done. that yeah i Check love it. that yeah that's true that's yeah. that's that's very i've very had true. several uh, clutches of eggs but the male just hasn't fertilized any so they're not yeah. eating it mm -hmm. man 
you know, you brought up a really good point. We'll have that. Well, we're going to, unfortunately, now you're in the family, Sumer. We're going to have you regularly. Sure. Sumer time. So you're going to be on regularly and Johnny and I are going to grill you on things. But this is an interesting topic that you talked about. You brought it up in the last second here and we don't have time today to address it in detail, but the journey. But it's not just getting the, you know, when you have the thing, it's the whole process of getting that fish, finding that fish, getting it comfortable, getting it to survive, getting it to breathe that's the joy for a lot of people. And then when it's like, it's done, it's like, okay, on to the next. Yeah. Like I kind of get that feeling. I, I, I've been having that feeling lately about some things like, Oh, it's the process. That's so enjoyable. Not just the, the destination. Yeah. And I, I hike a lot. Of course I live in Colorado. I, I love right. the mountains here. And so there's the saying that, you know, you, getting up on the summit is not, not the goal through the, the trail to the summit. That's yeah. the beauty of it. Um, and I, I feel that with almost every fish. That's why, that's another reason that I have not really tried to pair off my discus because somewhere I'm afraid that it'll be over. They pair off, they they breed, and then I'm gonna be busy with fry, and then it's gonna be over. So <laughs> I love that you are all about the process. That's yeah. super cool, actually. That that's like that that makes sense. It's yeah. not about breeding the fish; it's about the journey to breeding the fish. I I respect that a lot, and I've yeah. it, 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 that boy. We can we're gonna have a whole dis- Johnny. No, put a tack in that. We're gonna have a whole discussion on that. <laughs> yeah, um, that that is a, that's that huge, is a huge, and and I mean it's. We were talking about that very this rare trait to see yeah. people interested in in process rather than end end results. Um, in enjoying the journey. I mean, it, we could have a very very long discussion on that one. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, well, speaking of ending the journey, I think I'm going to bring this one to a close. We've been, we said we would keep you for an hour. It's been well over an hour and a half. Technical problems notwithstanding, Summer, we could, we could probably talk all day and, and we'll <laughs> definitely do that again. Yeah. And I think we'll have to do, we may all, you know, what we may have to do is like an Instagram live one time where you can take questions. Absolutely. That'd be a lot of fun. Let's all do yeah, that. Yeah. One more thing that I would like to talk about in yeah. the next time is um, fish, all the fishes from India. Um, oh, God, and, and all yeah. the really cool yes. things that people yes. can do with fishes from India. Absolutely. Yes. I, I, in fact, I was going to ask you about that because I'm obsessed, as you know, with orange chromide. Right. And that's just the most common of species. There's so many cool fish in it. Yes, oh, we're definitely going to have that conversation. Yeah. Yes. Because and Johnny and I have actually talked about that before. Like, why aren't Indian fishes more popular? Yeah. Yes. We're, we're going to gonna... be doing a full Indian tank right now. And yes. Um, yep. I, I just I. Yep, moving. Can't, can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Boy, we know the we know the feeling. We are going to have that conversation. That's going to be a really good topic. We're gonna we'll that'll be one of the main topics we cover in a future installment together. Um, because yeah, there's a lot of really cool fish from India. Um, so Sumer, thank you so much for for spending your time. Do you have anything else you want to leave anybody with today before we uh, sign off? Uh, no, it it was just so much fun talking to both of you and we were chit-chatting on Instagram before and I was saying that, you know, I I can probably talk about fish more than I can hear about fish. (laughs) (laughs) That's something Eric Budrock says on his website too, but yeah, it's it's, super true. Yeah. I can talk about fish all day long. (laughs) That's good because we're going to, we're going to, we're going to hold you to that. And Johnny, thank you again for your time. I know you have somewhere to be today too. So everybody, um, yeah, there you go. Well, thanks again, everybody, for having us. And, and remember, we, we really appreciate all the, the feedback, good and bad. And uh, we appreciate having these really cool guests. And if you can think of some questions in the future that you want to ask Johnny and Sumer, I know you've hit Johnny and I up with a lot of questions. Uh, and 
neat that you gave a few to Sumer. So let's hear some more for next time he's on, and uh, we'll try to try to get him uh, engaged in some of these uh, interesting discussions on uh, on your questions. So everybody, thanks so much for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of the Tent. Take it easy, guys. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.